Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Uh, in our se- a sermon series so far, based on the book by Kyle Eidelman, uh, Idol- God's at War, Defeating the Idols in Battle for Your Heart, we've looked at the idols of pleasure, of human love, and money. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the idol of success. In 1990, Chris Everett Lloyd gave an astonishing and yet unsurprising interview. For those who don't know who she is, she's an American former world number one tennis player during the 70s and the 80s. During her professional career that spanned from 1972 to 1989, she had won 157 single titles and 32 double titles. Out of those were 18 Grand Slam titles. Uh, and double titles. She became the world number one singles player within two years after she turned professional. Uh, A career winning percentage in single matches was around the 90% mark. It's the best of any singles player in history for both men and women. When she contemplated retirement, she was terrified. This is what she said to the interviewer. I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by being a tennis, play, a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause in order to have an identity. We all know this is not an isolated case. I wrote about Sidney Pollack and Carrie Packer in the the church news bulletin. Uh, Sidney Pollack could not justify his existence unless he was making films. And Carrie Packer felt this deep hole in his heart despite his wealth, despite his fortune, despite his power, despite his success. We read about them all the time, yet we still allow ourselves to be seduced by the idol of success. Why is this? Why do we allow ourselves to be seduced by the idol of success despite these stories that we hear all the time? Mary Bell, a counselor who works with high-level executives, explains, achievement is the alcohol of our time. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. You're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project, and you feel dynamite. That feeling doesn't last forever, and you slide back to normal. You think, I've got to start a new project, which is still normal. But you love the feeling of euphoria, so you've got to have it again. The problem is you can't stay on that high. An achievement addict is no different from any other kind of addict. It is particularly addictive because it is the idol of personal success and achievement more than any idols that give us the sense that we are God, that we're in control, that we have power over our destiny and also the destiny of others. This was what the devil promised Adam and Eve if they disobeyed God, that they would be like God. I mean, is there a greater feeling than knowing that you are adored because of your wisdom, because of your strength, because of your talents, 
and your abilities? Is there a greater feeling knowing that you are at the very best, you're the, you're the, very, you're the very best at what you do, and to be at the top of the, of the heap? And the icing on the cake is you got there all by yourself. You got there in the back of your grit, your gut, your determination, and your efforts. And this is what it means to be a self-made man. The classic phrase coined in 80, 1822 by Henry Clay, an American statesman, to describe individuals whose success lay within the individuals themselves and not with external factors. The idea of a self-made man or a woman cuts to the core of the American dream. Many of the first settlers of North America were devout Christians who believed that God honors hard work and determined effort. You and no one else can make your dreams come true. So if you're poor, it's your fault. You're not working hard enough, or your dream isn't big enough. Now, while people are eager to attribute their success to their own intellect and hard work, the reality is much, much more complicated than that. Personal connections, our environment, such as our family, our place of birth, even what appears to be plain luck, can determine how successful a person is. And it doesn't help either that our contemporary culture makes us more vulnerable to making a counterfeit God out of success. In traditional cultures, personal worth is given to those who fulfill their assigned role in the community, whether as a citizen, father, mother, brother, sister, or teacher. However, modern society is individualistic, where worth is based on the right of every individual to develop his or her own identity and self, free from any socially assigned role or category. The result of this is our society puts great pressure on individuals to prove their worth through personal achievement. This means being a good citizen or family member no longer suffice. You have to win and show that you're one of the best at what you do. Consequently, we have the professionalization of childhood, as an author describes it, where from very young, an alliance of parents and schools create a pressure cooker of competition all designed to churn out high-achieving students. Sadly, the family has become the nursery where the craving for success is first nurtured, rather than the place of refuge from a heartless dog-eat-dog world. The near obsession with high achievement is taking a toll on our young people, with a disproportionate number of people trying to cram into the fields of finance, business, corporate law, medicine, a trend that many educators have observed for many years. And the reason for this is because of the high salaries and the aura of success and status attached to these professions. I should know this because I'm a Chinese. The pressure, the pressure not just to have a job, but to have a job that is regarded, yeah? highly by society. I remember speaking to a lovely, lovely Chinese Malaysian who was doing a degree in UQ in business and economics. And he hated it. He hated his degree. He hated it so much, he just was so depressed. And I said, why are you doing this degree? 
I don't have a choice. If I did the degree if that of my choosing, my father will not sponsor me, will not pay for my degree. And what's your, what's your love? He says, my love is music. I love music. And I want to be a school teacher and teach music. But my father would have none of it because of its low salary and because of its low status. His father had big dreams for him. And it did not include his dreams. So this is not about the child. This is about the father and his ego. Is it any wonder that we're seeing people in greater numbers feeling frustrated over unfulfilling work because their career choices have so little reference to God and the larger questions of meaning, purpose, and service. Oh, parents with children, I hope you listen to this. And don't push your children to succeed. You might think it's for them, but maybe have a deeper look in your heart and see whether it's really about them or it's really about you and the emptiness in your heart. In an article breaking the myth of, of being self-made, the author McKinnon asserts that we are myopic when, it, when thinking about our own success, that despite evidence to the contrary that our success is due to a whole range of factors, we perpetuate the self-made myth. For instance, one of the predominant and lasting American narrative is the rags-to-riches stories popularized by Horatio Elger during the 19th century. The many stories he penned, including a young boy by the name of Dick who was able to pull himself up by the bootstraps, have been reinterpreted to support the narrative that through sheer hard work and determination, one can amass great wealth and success. But as McKinnon asserts, what's conveniently left out is a concern for others that was always a central theme in his stories. The net definition of success, according to Horatio, wasn't extreme wealth, but a middle-class middle place in society and a good reputation. Additionally, in almost all of Horatio Elger's stories, the protagonist is aided by a small coterie of friends and strangers who help make his success possible. John Swansburg, in his piece, The Self-Made Man, points out that even the very phrase to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, to mean success through your own efforts, is a corruption of the original meaning. The first usage of the phrase was actually a sarcastic dig at an inventor's attempt to build a perpetual motion machine described an impractical attempt to achieve an impossibility, not a feat of self-reliance. Interesting, isn't it? And by the way, have you actually pulled your boots, bootstraps, uh, pull your, uh, try pulling yourself out by the bootstraps? Have you done that? It's an impossibility. <laughs> See how we uh, want to believe what we want to believe here, what we want to hear. In Pew's Research, a nonpartisan American think tank that provides information on social issues, trends that shape not only the U.S. but the world, it showed that it is exceedingly rare for Americans to go from rags to riches. 
And the more modest movement from the bottom of the economic ladder isn't common either. In fact, economic mobility is greater in Canada, Denmark, and France than it is, than it is in the U.S. To use an extreme example, if you have been born in the largest slum in Asia, in Mumbai, called Dharavi, instead of where you were born, it would have mattered very little that you worked hard and used your talents. You would have still ended up poor and powerless. I would like Anthony Robbins to go to these slums and pitch his talk. Thus the message that popular culture is feeding to our young people, that you might be feeding to your own children, that they can be anything that they set their mind to, is in fact not only delusional, but dangerous. The reality is we're not nearly as responsible for our success as we've been led to think and believe. Timothy Keller expounds, Human beings have very little real power over their lives. 95% of what sets the course of their lives is completely outside their control. This includes the century and place they're born in, who their parents and family are, their childhood environment, their physical stature, genetically hardwired talents, and most of the circumstances that they find themselves in. In short, all we are and have is given to us by God. We're not infinite creators, but finite, dependent creatures. It's only the arrogant and delusional who cannot recognize the contributions of others and myriad of other factors to their success. Even Chris Everett Loy, the tennis player, would agree with that assessment. But critically, more critically, is this. Even if you succeed, you're still left empty. You're still left hollow and incomplete. When Carrie Packer's words, one of Australia's most powerful and wealthiest men, you're still left with a big dark hole in your heart. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we're introduced to one of the most successful and powerful men in the Bible, who was, at the same time, a dead man walking. The, so the story assaults our self-made ma self men and women proclivities that infect us with hubris and feed our arrogance, insecurity, and ignorance. We read in verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 5, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aaron. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aaron. Naaman was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Notice how the author begins with Naaman's extraordinary list of accomplishments and then adds this inconvenient truth that he had leprosy, a fatal, wasting skin disease that slowly crippled, disfigured, and finally killed their victims. Leprosy would have had the resonance in its day that cancer has in ours. All of his success, all of his wealth, all of his power were useless 
in presenting the social alienation and despair that he felt arising from the condition of leprosy that he was infected with. Now, his wife had a slave girl who told him about the prophet Elisha, who might be able to cure him. And so with nothing to lose, I mean, he's probably tried every doctor, every treatment. This was his last chance at healing, I suppose. So with nothing to lose, he set off to Israel with lots of money and a reference letter from his king to the king of Israel. The letter read in verse 6, with this letter, this is from the king of Syria, with this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. The king of Israel was miffed and mortified. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, Am I God? Can I, can I kill and bring back the life? Why does, this, why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. He's asking me to do the impossible. Good grief. Naaman, that's because Naaman and the Syrian king had assumed that the God of Israel was like all the other gods at the time, and even today, that he works on a quid pro quo arrangement. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. If you live a good life, God will have to bless you and prosper you. So it was natural then to assume that the rich and powerful in society are favored by the gods. That's how you got there. That's why you're rich and powerful, because you have the blessings of God. You have access to God, special favor from God. That is why Naaman went directly to the king of Israel instead of Elisha as the slave girl instructed. The king of Israel will fix me up with his God. That's what he was thinking. From one king to another, right? From one influential person to another. You can fix me up with your God. I have the pedigree. I have the wealth. I'm a good person. I'm a virtuous person. I give to the poor. Surely God won't turn me away. But the king of Israel was fully aware that the God of Israel was totally unlike the gods of the nations. He will take no notice of Naaman's success, wealth, and power. Yahweh refuses to be dictated to. Yahweh refuses to be appeased. Yahweh cannot be bought. Naaman was after a God who can be put into his debt. But this is a God of grace who put everyone else in his debt. Whatever God gives to us is a gift of grace. When Elisha, the story continues, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Just have the man come to me, okay? And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses. So the king of Israel said, Naaman, just go directly to, to, to Elisha. I can do nothing for you despite the faith that your king has placed in me. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to Satan. He doesn't even come to the front door to speak to Naaman. He sends his servant out. Hey, Joe, just go out and tell Naaman. Wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. And Naaman walked away very angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me. 
and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Like David Copperfield. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned away and went off in a rage. First, the cheek of Elisha to not come out to the door and speak to him, but sends a servant out in his stead. That was offensive. Outrageous. Second, Elisha doesn't take his money, not interested in his money at all. And Naaman is probably thinking, I'm not a charity case. <laughs> I want to earn my healing. I can pay for my healing. I can pay for my treatment. I'm not a charity case. Third, the instruction to go, simply go and dip himself seven times in the Jordan River if he wants to be healed. He's probably thinking to himself, that is child's play, which requires zero ability and talent. And any idiot can do that. And I'm not an idiot, and I'm not a child. Make me work for my healing, for goodness sake, Elisha. Give me something more challenging than dipping in the river seven times. Go wash yourself, good grief. A most difficult command for Naaman, precisely because it was so easy. <laughs> Just accept God's forgiveness. Just confess my sin, say I'm sorry, and that's it. I don't have to do anything else. That's just too good to be true. And how has that been drummed into us? If the deal is too good to be true, but that is God's point and lesson to Naaman and to us all. Naaman, my salvation, my love, my favor, and healing cannot be earned, only received. To receive it, you only need to humble yourself, admit your need, admit your powerlessness, and cast yourself on my mercy. You are not the master of your own fate and the captain of your own soul. Your successes are ultimately because of my grace. Naaman fortunately did humble himself. Eventually, only because his servants who loved him enough pled with him to do exactly what Elisha had told him. And the transformation was stunning. Verses 14 to 16. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Amazing. The Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. There is no other name by which we can be saved except through the God of Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. He's still trying to pay for his healing. It can't be free, Elisha. It's going to cost me something. <laughs> and Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. The penny finally dropped for Naaman. 
The counterfeit gods of success, wealth, and power can't do for him only what God can do for him. His healing was a gift from God. And in truth, so were his successes. Yes, Naaman had a part to play in his success, but only because of the gifts and abilities and opportunities God had given him. God's grace has sustained him all his life, but he didn't see it until now. Even with his healing, yes, Naaman had to actually go down to the river and to dip himself seven times. But the process of getting him there was what? Down to God's grace to him, expressed through, first of all, his wife's servant, Elisha's servant, and then his own servants. If it wasn't for these servants, he wouldn't have been where he was. These are people who were considered no more important than a pet or beast of burden by the successful, wealthy, and powerful in those days. And yet God used them to deliver his message of salvation to Naaman. God's answer came not from the palace, but from the quarters of slaves. The greatest example of God's grace, of course, is none other than our Lord Jesus, who came not to Rome, but to a backward colony, who was born not in a palace, but in a manger, who rode into Jerusalem not on a white majestic horse, but on a donkey, who brought salvation to us not through might and strength, but through surrender, service, sacrifice, and death. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing inherently wrong with success, with work, and achievements. They're good things until they become the source of our worth, they become the source of our identity, our security, our value, and salvation. Then they become toxic and detrimental to our well-being. But as we've been saying repeatedly, idols in our lives cannot be removed. They can only be replaced. Keller again explains, the human heart's desire for a particular valuable object may be conquered, but its need to have some such object is unconquerable. How can we break our heart's fixation on doing some great thing in order to heal ourselves of our sense of inadequacy, in order to give our lives meaning? Only when we see what Jesus, our great suffering servant, has done for us, will we finally understand why God's salvation does not require us to do some great thing. We don't have to do it. Because Jesus has. He did it all for us, and he loves us. And that is how we know that our existence is justified. Because of what he's done, not because of what we have done or can do. When we believe in what he accomplished for us with our minds, and when we're moved by what he did for us in our hearts, it begins to kill off the addiction, the need to succeed at all costs. We are not what our feelings say we are. We are not what people say we are, no matter how significant they are in our lives. We are not what we earn and possess. We are not what our success and achievements say we are. We are what 
God says we are through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? We're not who we are because of all those things. We are who we are because of what God says we are. Manifest visibly, concretely, through him sending his son to die in our place. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.